Section twenty six of The Great Events, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Great Events by Famous Historians, Volume One. Edited by Charles F. Horne, Rossiter Johnson, and John Rudd. Solon's Early Greek Legislation, B.C. 594, by George Grote, Part 5. It seems generally that Solon determined by law the outlay for the public sacrifices, though we do not know what were his particular directions. We are told that he reckoned a sheep and an medimnus of wheat or barley as equivalent, either of them, to a drachma, and that he also prescribed the prices to be paid for first-rate oxen intended for solemn occasions. But it astonishes us to see the large recompense which he awarded out of the public treasury to a victor at the Olympic or Isthmian Games, to the former five hundred drachmas equal to one year's income of the highest of the four classes on the census, to the latter one hundred drachmas. The magnitude of these rewards strikes us the more when we compare them with the fines on rape and evil speaking. We cannot be surprised that the philosopher Xenophanes noticed, with some degree of severity, the extravagant estimate of this species of excellence current among the Grecian cities. At the same time we must remember, both, that these Panhellenic games presented the chief visible evidence of peace and sympathy among the numerous communities of Greece, and that, in the time of Solon, factitious reward was still needful to encourage them. In respect to land and agriculture, Solon proclaimed a public reward of five drachmas for every wolf brought in, and one drachma for every wolf's cub. The extent of wild land has at all times been considerable in Attica. He also provided rules respecting the use of wells between neighbors, and respecting the planting in conterminous olive grounds. Whether any of these regulations continued in operation during the better-known period of Athenian history cannot be safely affirmed. In respect to theft, we find it stated that Solon repealed the punishment of death which Draco had annexed to that crime, and enacted as a penalty compensation to an amount double the value of the property stolen. The simplicity of this law perhaps affords ground for presuming that it really does belong to Solon. But the law which prevailed during the time of the orators respecting theft must have been introduced at some later period, since it enters into distinctions and mentions both places and forms of procedure, which we cannot reasonably refer to the 46th Olympiad. The public dinners at the Prytaneum, of which the Archons and a select few partook in common, were also either first established, or perhaps only more strictly regulated by Solon. He ordered barley cakes for their ordinary meals, and wheaten loaves for festival days, prescribing how often each person should dine at the table. The honor of dining at the table of the Prytaneum was maintained throughout as a valuable reward at the disposal of the government. Among the various laws of Solon, there are few which have attracted more notice than that 
which pronounces the man who in a sedition stood aloof and took part with neither side to be dishonored and disfranchised strictly speaking this seems more in the nature of an emphatic moral denunciation or a religious curse than a legal sanction capable of being formally applied in an individual case and after judicial trial though the sentence of atimi under the more elaborated attic procedure was both definite in its penal consequences and also judicially delivered we may however follow the course of ideas under which solon was induced to write this sentence on his tables and we may trace the influence of similar ideas in later attic institutions it is obvious that his denunciation is confined to that special case in which a sedition has already broken out or that pisistratus megacles and lycurgus are in arms at the head of their partisans assuming these leaders to be wealthy and powerful men which would in all probability be the fact the constituted authority such as solon saw before him in attica even after his own organic amendments was not strong enough to maintain the peace it became in fact itself one of the contending parties under such given circumstances the sooner every citizen publicly declared his adherence to some of them the earlier this suspension of legal authority was likely to terminate nothing was so mischievous as the indifference of the mass or the disposition to let the combatants fight out the matter among themselves and then to submit to the victor nothing was more likely to encourage aggression on the part of an ambitious malcontent than the conviction that if he could once overpower the small amount of physical force which surrounded the archons and exhibit himself in armed possession of the pritaneum or the acropolis he might immediately count upon passive submission on the part of all the free men without under the state of feeling which solon inculcates the insurgent leader would have to calculate that every man who was not actively in his favor would be actively against him and this would render his enterprise much more dangerous indeed he could then never hope to succeed except on the double supposition of extraordinary popularity in his own person and widespread detestation of the existing government he would thus be placed under the influence of powerful deterring motives so that ambition would be less likely to seduce him into a course which threatened nothing but ruin unless under such encouragements from the pre-existing public opinion as to make his success a result desirable for the community among the small political societies of greece especially in the age of solon when the number of despots in other parts of greece seems to have been at its maximum every government whatever might be its form was sufficiently weak to make its overthrow a matter of comparative facility unless upon the supposition of a band of foreign mercenaries which would render the government a system of naked force and which the athenian lawgiver would of course never contemplate there was no other stay for it except a positive and pronounced feeling of attachment on the part of the mass of citizens indifference on their part would render them a prey to every daring man of wealth 
who choose to become a conspirator, that they should be ready to come forward, not only with voice but with arms, and that they should be known beforehand to be so, was essential to the maintenance of every good Grecian government. It was salutary in preventing mere personal attempts at revolution, and pacific in its tendency, even where the revolution had actually broken out, because in the greater number of cases the proportion of partisans would probably be very unequal and the inferior party would be compelled to renounce their hopes. It will be observed that, in this enactment of Solon, the existing government is ranked merely as one of the contending parties. The virtuous citizen is enjoined not to come forward in its support, but to come forward at all events, either for it or against it. Positive and early action in all which is prescribed to him as matter of duty, in the age of Solon there was no political idea or system yet current which could be assumed as an unquestionable datum, no conspicuous standard to which the citizens could be pledged under all circumstances to attach themselves. The option lay only between a mitigated oligarchy in possession and a despot in possibility. A contest wherein the affections of the people could rarely be counted upon in favor of the established government. But this neutrality in respect to the constitution was at an end after the revolution of Clisthenes, when the idea of the sovereign people and the democratical institutions became both familiar and precious to every individual citizen. We shall hereafter find the Athenians binding themselves by the most sincere and solemn oath to uphold their democracy against all attempts to subvert it. We shall discover in them a sentiment not less positive and uncompromising in its direction than energetic in its inspirations. But while we notice this very important change in their character, we shall at the same time perceive that the wise precautionary recommendation of Solon to obviate sedition by an early declaration of the impartial public between two contending leaders was not lost upon them. Such, in point of fact, was the purpose of that salutary and protective institution which is called the ostracism. When two party leaders, in the early stages of the Athenian democracy, each powerful in adherence and influence, had become passionately embarked in bitter and prolonged opposition to each other, such opposition was likely to conduct one or other to violent measures. Over and above the hopes of party triumph, each might well fear that, if he himself continued within the bounds of legality, he might fall a victim to aggressive proceedings on the part of his antagonists. To ward off this formidable danger, a public vote was called for, to determine which of the two should go into temporary banishment, retaining his property and unvisited by any disgrace. A number of citizens, not less than six thousand, voting secretly, and therefore independently, were required to take part, pronouncing upon one or other of these eminent rivals a sentence of exile for ten years. The one who remained became of course more powerful, yet less in a situation to be driven into anti-constitutional courses 
than he was before. Tragedy and comedy were now beginning to be grafted on the lyric and choric song. First, one actor was provided to relieve the chorus. Next, two actors were introduced to sustain fictitious characters and carry on a dialogue in such manner that the songs of the chorus and the interlocution of the actors formed a continuous piece. Solon, after having heard Thespis acting, as all the early composers did, both tragic and comic, in his own comedy, asked him afterward if he was not ashamed to pronounce such falsehoods before so large an audience. And when Thespis answered, that there was no harm in saying and doing such things merely for amusement, Solon indignantly exclaimed, striking the ground with his stick, If once we come to praise and esteem such amusement as this, we shall quickly find the effects of it in our daily transactions. For the authenticity of this anecdote it would be rash to vouch, but we may at least treat it as the protest of some early philosopher against the deceptions of the drama. And it is interesting as marking the incipient struggles of that literature in which Athens afterward attained such unrivaled excellence. It would appear that all the laws of Solon were proclaimed, inscribed, and accepted without either discussion or resistance. He is said to have described them not as the best laws which he could himself have imagined, but as the best which he could have induced the people to accept. He gave them validity for the space of ten years, during which period both the Senate collectively and the Archons individually swore to observe them with fidelity, under penalty, in case of non-observance, of a golden statue as large as life to be erected at Delphi. But though the acceptance of the laws were accomplished without difficulty, it was not found so easy either for the people to understand and obey or for the framer to explain them every day persons came to solon either with praise or criticism or suggestions of various improvements or questions as to the construction of particular enactments until at last he became tired of this endless process of reply and vindication which was seldom successful either in removing obscurity or in satisfying complainants, foreseeing that if he remained he would be compelled to make changes he obtained leave of absence from his countrymen for ten years trusting that before the expiration of that period they would have become accustomed to his laws he quitted his native city in the full certainty that his laws would remain unrepelled until his return for, says Herodotus, the Athenians could not repeal them, since they were bound by solemn oath to observe them for ten years. The unqualified manner in which the historian here speaks of an oath, as if it created a sort of physical necessity and shut out all possibility of a contrary result, deserves notice as illustrating Grecian sentiment. On departing from Athens, Solon first visited Egypt, where he communicated largely with Psenophis of Heliopolis and Sonches of Sais, Egyptian priests who had much to tell respecting their ancient history, and from whom he learned matters 
real or pretended, far transcending in alleged antiquity the oldest Grecian genealogies, especially the history of the vast submerged island of Atlantis and the war which the ancestors of the Athenians had successfully carried on against it nine thousand years before. Solon is said to have commenced an epic poem upon this subject, but he did not live to finish it, and nothing of it now remains. From Egypt he went to Cyprus, where he visited the small town of Epia, said to have been originally founded by Demophon, son of Theseus, and ruled at this period by the prince Philocyprus, each town in Cyprus having its own petty prince. It was situated near the river Clarius, in a position precipitous and secure, but inconvenient and ill-supplied. Solon persuaded Philocyprus to quit the old site and establish a new town down in the fertile plain beneath. He himself stayed and became assist of the new establishment, making all the regulations requisite for its safe and prosperous march, which was indeed so decisively manifested that many new settlers flocked into the new plantation, called by Philocyprus Soli, in honor of Solon. To our deep regret we are not permitted to know what these regulations were, but the general fact is attested by the poems of Solon himself, and the lines in which he bade farewell to Philocyprus on quitting the island are yet before us. On the dispositions of this prince his poem bestowed unqualified commendation. Besides his visit to Egypt and Cyprus, a story was also current of his having conversed with the Lydian king Croesus at Sardis. The communication said to have taken place between them has been woven by Herodotus into a sort of moral tale which forms one of the most beautiful episodes in his whole history. Though this tale has been told and retold as if it were genuine history, yet as it now stands it is irreconcilable with chronology, although very possibly Solon may, at some time or other, have visited Sardis and seen Croesus as hereditary prince. But even if no chronological objections existed, the moral purpose of the tale is so prominent, and pervades it so systematically from beginning to end, that these internal grounds are of themselves sufficiently strong to impeach its credibility as a matter of fact, unless such doubts happen to be outweighed, which in this case they are not, by good contemporary testimony. The narrative of Solon and Croesus can be taken for nothing else but an illustrative fiction, borrowed by Herodotus from some philosopher, enclosed in his own peculiar beauty of expression, which on this occasion is more decidedly poetical than is habitual with him. I cannot transcribe, and I hardly dare to abridge it. The vainglorious Croesus, at the summit of his conquests and his riches, endeavors to win from his visitor Solon an opinion that he is the happiest of mankind. The latter, after having twice preferred to him modest and meritorious Grecian citizens, at length reminds him that his vast wealth and power are of a tenure too precarious to serve as an evidence of happiness. 
that the gods are jealous and meddlesome, and often make the show of happiness a mere prelude to extreme disaster, and that no man's life can be called happy until the whole of it has been played out, so that it may be seen to be out of the reach of reverses. Croesus treats his this opinion as absurd, but a great judgment from God fell upon him after Solon was departed, probably, observes Herodotus, because he fancied himself the happiest of all men. First he lost his favorite son, Attis, a brave and intelligent youth, his only other son being dumb. For the Mysians of Olympus being ruined by a destructive and formidable wild boar, which they were unable to subdue, applied for aid to Croesus, who sent to the spot a chosen hunting force, and permitted, though with great reluctance, in consequence of an alarming dream, that his favorite son should accompany them. The young prince was unintentionally slain by the Phrygian exile Adrastus, whom Croesus had sheltered and protected. Hardly had the latter recovered from the anguish of this misfortune, when the rapid growth of Cyrus and the Persian power induced him to go to war with them, against the advice of his wisest counsellors. After a struggle of about three years, he was completely defeated, his capital Sardis taken by storm, and himself made prisoner. Cyrus ordered a large pile to be prepared, and placed upon it Croesus in fetters, together with fourteen young Lydians, in the intention of burning them alive, either as a religious offering, or in fulfilment of a vow, or perhaps, says Herodotus, to see whether some of the gods would not interfere to rescue a man so preeminently pious as the king of Lydia. In this sad extremity, Croesus bethought him of the warning which he had before despised, and thrice pronounced, with a deep groan, the name of Solon. Cyrus desired the interpreters to inquire whom he was invoking, and learnt in reply the anecdote of the Athenian lawgiver, together with the solemn memento which he had offered to Croesus during more prosperous days, attesting the frail tenure of all human greatness. The remark sunk deep into the Persian monarch as a token of what might happen to himself. He repented of his purpose, and directed that the pile which had already been kindled should be immediately extinguished. But the orders came too late. In spite of the most zealous efforts of the bystanders, the flame was found unquenchable, and Croesus would still have been burned, had he not implored with prayers and tears the succor of Apollo, to whose Delphian and Theban temples he had given such munificent presents. His prayers were heard, the fair sky was immediately overcast, and a profuse rain descended, sufficient to extinguish the flames. The life of Croesus was thus saved, and he became afterward the confidential friend and adviser of his conqueror. Such is the brief outline of a narrative which Herodotus has given with full development and with impressive effect. It would have served as a show lecture to the youth of Athens, not less admirably than the well-known fable of the choice of Heracles, which the philosopher Prodicus, a junior contemporary of Herodotus, 
delivered with so much popularity it illustrates forcibly the religious and ethical ideas of antiquity the deep sense of the jealousy of the gods who would not endure pride in any one except themselves the impossibility for any man of realizing to himself more than a very moderate share of happiness the danger from a reactionary nemesis if at any time he had overpassed such limit and the necessity of calculations taking in the whole of life as a basis for rational comparison of different individuals and it embodies as a practical consequence from these feelings the often repeated protest of moralists against vehement impulses and unrestrained aspirations the more valuable this narrative appears in its illustrative character the less can we presume to treat it as a history it is much to be regretted that we have no information respecting events in attica immediately after the solonian laws and constitution which were promulgated in b c five hundred ninety four so as to understand better the practical effect of these changes what we next hear respecting solon in attica refers to a period immediately preceding the first usurpation of pisistratus in b c five hundred sixty and after the return of solon from his long absence we are here again introduced to the same oligarchical dissensions as are reported to have prevailed before the solonian legislation the pedes or opulent proprietors of the plain round athens under lycurgus the parali of the south of attica under megacles and the diacri or mountaineers of the eastern cantons the poorest of the three classes under pisistratus are in a state of violent intestine dispute the account of plutarch represents solon as returning to athens during the height of this sedition he was treated with respect by all parties but his recommendations were no longer obeyed and he was disqualified by age from acting with effect in public he employed his best efforts to mitigate party animosities and applied himself particularly to restrain the ambition of pisistratus whose ulterior projects he quickly detected the future greatness of pisistratus is said to have been first portended by a miracle which happened even before his birth to his father hippocrates at the olympic games it was realized partly by his bravery and conduct which had been displayed in the capture of nicea from the megarians partly by his popularity of speech and manners his championship of the poor and his ostentatious disavowal of all selfish pretensions partly by an artful mixture of stratagem and force solon after having addressed fruitless remonstrances to pisistratus himself publicly denounced his designs in verses addressed to the people the deception whereby pisistratus finally accomplished his design is memorable in grecian tradition he appeared one day in the agora of athens in his chariot with a pair of mules he had intentionally wounded both his person and the mules and in this condition he threw himself upon the compassion and defence of the people pretending that his political enemies had violently attacked him he implored the people to grant him a guard and at the moment when their sympathies were freshly aroused 
both in his favor and against his supposed assassins, Aristo proposed formally to the Ecclesia, the pro-Boilotic Senate, being composed of friends of Pisistratus, had previously authorized the proposition, that a company of fifty clubmen should be assigned as a permanent bodyguard for the defense of Pisistratus. To this motion Solon opposed a strenuous resistance, but found himself overborne and even treated as if he had lost his senses. The poor were earnest in favor of it, while the rich were afraid to express their dissent, and he could only comfort himself after the fatal vote had been passed, by exclaiming that he was wiser than the former, and more determined than the latter. Such was one of the first known instances in which this memorable stratagem was played off against the liberty of a Grecian community. The unbounded popular favor which had procured the passing of this grant was still further manifested by the absence of all precautions to prevent the limits of the grant from being exceeded. The number of the bodyguard was not long confined to fifty, and probably their clubs were soon exchanged for sharper weapons. Pisistratus thus found himself strong enough to throw off the mask and seize the Acropolis. His leading opponents, Megacles and the Alkinoids, immediately fled the city, and it was left to the venerable age and undaunted patriotism of Solon to stand forward almost alone in a vain attempt to resist the usurpation. He publicly presented himself in the marketplace, employing encouragement, remonstrance, and reproach, in order to rouse the spirit of the people. To prevent this despotism from coming, he told them, would have been easy. To shake it off now was more difficult, yet at the same time more glorious. But he spoke in vain, for all who were not actually favorable to Pisistratus listened only to their fears and remained passive. Nor did anyone join Solon, when, as a last appeal, he put on his armor and planted himself in a military posture before the door of his house. I have done my duty, he exclaimed at length. I have sustained to the best of my power my country and the laws. And he then renounced all further hope of opposition, though resisting the instances of his friends that he should flee, and returning for answer when they asked him on what he relied for protection, on my old age nor did he even think it necessary to repress the inspirations of his muse. Some verses yet remain, composed seemingly at a moment when the strong hand of the new despot had begun to make itself sorely felt, in which he tells his countrymen, If ye have endured sorrow from your own baseness of soul, impute not the fault of this to the gods. Ye have yourselves put force and dominion into the hands of these men, and have thus drawn upon yourselves wretched slavery. It is gratifying to learn that Pisistratus, whose conduct throughout his despotism was comparatively mild, left Solon untouched. How long this distinguished man survived the practical subversion of his own constitution, we cannot certainly determine, but according to the most probable statement, he died during the very next year, at the advanced age of eighty. We have only to regret that we are deprived of the means of following more in detail his noble and exemplary character. He represents the best tendencies of his age, combined with much that is personally excellent, 
the improved ethical sensibility, the thirst for enlarged knowledge and observation, not less potent in old age than in youth, the conception of regularized popular institutions, departing sensibly from the type and spirit of the governments around him, and calculated to found a new character in the Athenian people, a genuine and reflecting sympathy with the mass of the poor, anxious not merely to rescue them from the oppressions of the rich, but also to create in them habits of self-relying industry. Lastly, during his temporary possession of a power altogether arbitrary, not merely an absence of all selfish ambition, but a rare discretion in seizing the mean between conflicting exigencies. In reading his poems we must always recollect that what now appears commonplace was once new, so that to his comparatively unlettered age the social pictures which he draws were still fresh, and his exhortations calculated to live in the memory. The poems composed on moral subjects generally inculcate a spirit of gentleness towards others and moderation in personal objects. They represent the gods as irresistible, retributive, favoring the good and punishing the bad, though sometimes very tardily. But his compositions on special and present occasions are usually conceived in a more vigorous spirit, denouncing the oppressions of the rich at one time, and the timid submission to Pisistratus at another, and expressing in empathic language his own proud consciousness of having stood forward as champion of the mass of the people. Of his early poems hardly anything is preserved. The few lines remaining seem to manifest a jovial temperament, which we may well conceive to have been overlaid by such political difficulties as he had to encounter difficulties arising successively out of the Megarian War, the Silonian sacrilege, the public despondency healed by Epimenides, and the task of arbiter between a rapacious oligarchy and a suffering people. In one of his elegies addressed to Mimernus, he marked out the sixtieth year as the longest desirable period of life, in preference to the eightieth year, which that poet had expressed to wish to attain. But his own life, as far as we can judge, seems to have reached the longer of the two periods, and not the least honorable part of it, the resistance to Pisistratus, occurs immediately before his death. There prevailed a story that his ashes were collected and scattered around the island of Salamis, which Plutarch treats as absurd, though he tells us at the same time that it was believed both by Aristotle and by many other considerable men. It is at least as ancient as the poet Cratinus, who alluded to it in one of his comedies, and I do not feel inclined to reject it. The inscription on the statue of Solon at Athens described him as a Salaminian. He had been the great means of acquiring the island for his country, and it seems highly probable that among the new Athenian citizens, who went to settle there, he may have received a lot of land and become enrolled among the Salaminian demots. The dispersion of his ashes connecting him with the island as its oasist may be construed, if not as an expression of a public vote, at least as a piece of affectionate vanity on the part of his surviving friends. End of section 26